Well, our focus this weekend is on the Christian mind, and uh, this is a a uh, series of utmost importance, the, the mind. And it's a series or a topic, I should say, that actually is something that we don't often think about. Think of that, the Christian mind. How often do we think about the Christian mind, especially the centrality of the mind for the Christian life? So much of the perception today of Christianity is that it's mindless. So much of the perception of Christianity today is that Christianity is perhaps something spiritual in some kind of mystical way, or it's some kind of an emotional state of being. But when people think of Christianity, they rarely associate it with a robust use of the mind, the right use of the mind. And what I want to do this session this evening is look at what we're going to call and what Jesus calls the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22. But before we get there, I want to read to you a statement that sets this in our proper study for this evening. And that is a statement by Os Guinness. Uh, Os Guinness makes this statement uh, when he describes the Christian mind and its centrality to the Christian life. He says this, thinking Christianly is first and foremost a matter of love, of minds in love with God and with the truth of his world. Let me say that again. Thinking Christianly is first and foremost a matter of love, of minds in love with God and the truth of his world. So to start our study off, we have to understand that The use of the Christian mind is not just some academic exercise. It really has to do with love. And the place where this is most vividly taught is in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 22. So turn to Matthew chapter 22, and what we're going to do is look at verses 34 to 40 and see how Jesus emphasizes love and the mind as central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 22 I'll begin reading in verse 34 and all the way to uh, verse 40. Matthew records this, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, it's important to understand a little bit of the context here as Jesus brings out this teaching what we find is that this particular statement by Jesus is found in a series of interrogations, several interrogations that take place at this latter time in Jesus's life and ministry when the religious leaders of Israel take him aside, essentially, and begin to interrogate him. And we have a series in chapter 22 of several questions The first question, the first set of interrogations begins in verse 15. The 
Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him. There is the first question that is asked, and it relates to tribute to Caesar, so taxation. And we see the answer that, or the result of the the answer that is given by Jesus then in verse 22. And hearing Jesus' answers, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. The second interrogation begins in verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees came to Jesus to question him. And there, the the interrogation focuses on the resurrection. And, And so Jesus responds to them, and we have the answer then in verse 33. When the crowds heard Jesus's answer, they were astonished at his teaching. And then the third interrogation happens in this context, verse 34. Then the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and they gathered themselves together. And so they now come back with another question. This question, however, is not given any kind of summation in terms of a response. And then in verse 41, we have the fourth question. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Now the tables are turned. Now it's no longer the religious leaders asking the questions. Now it's Jesus himself. And then we have the answer to that interrogation given in verse 46. Now no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So what takes place here is this series of hostile actions on the part of the religious leaders issued against Jesus. And they themselves ask him three questions. And the question and answer that we're looking at this evening is actually their final question before Jesus turns the tables and asks them this question. And when we look at this text, verses 34 to 40, we see it break down into a very simple structure. First of all, we have an ultimate question that is asked in verses 34 to 36, and we'll look at that in detail. And then we have a supreme answer given in verses 37 to 40. An ultimate question and a supreme answer. Let's look first at the ultimate question given in verses 34 to 36. Jesus had, at this time, just muzzled the Sadducees, they had asked him a question about the resurrection. And as we read in verse 33, the crowds heard Jesus's response to the Sadducees, and they were astonished. Jesus's handling of the Sadducees, who deny a resurrection, had astonished the entire crowds who were, who were those listening in on this interrogation. So the Pharisees, in response, on the one hand, are are glad to see Jesus humiliate the Sadducees because the Pharisees didn't like the Sadducees. So they were only too happy to see them put in their place. However, the Pharisees were not happy that it was Jesus who did this. It's kind of like the enemy of an enemy is a friend. And so they're, they're torn in this case because they do not want to see Jesus raised in the esteem of the people. And so it's interesting that Mark, or excuse me, Matthew here states that the Sadducees having, were, were, were silenced essentially, and now the Pharisees gathered themselves together. That language echoes what we read in 
Psalm 2, verse 2. Remember that text in that great psalm about how the nations conspire against the Lord and his anointed, and he essentially laughs at them. That's what happens in this text. Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We have that same language here. The Pharisees gathered themselves together. This is in in the spirit of Psalm 2, verse 2. And they do so to test Jesus. They do so to put Jesus under scrutiny. There is no teachability on their part, no desire to learn. They are seeking to catch him in a legal error. They want to catch him in a fatal flaw. And so they send a representative. We read in the text here that one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Now, the reason why they sent forth a lawyer is because the lawyer among the the Pharisees was the one who was most attuned to the most detailed issues of the law. The the lawyers were the ones who got into the fine print of things. And if anybody could find a weakness in Jesus, they thought, it would be this lawyer. So the lawyer comes forward, the representative of these Pharisees, And he asks him a question. And the question is this, which is the greatest or the great commandment in the law? Now, that adjective great there is used here in the sense of the superlative. What is the greatest? What is the great commandment? And the rabbis in general were experts at at taking uh, all the the, the Mosaic law, the 613 laws of the Mosaic law and, and, and the prohibitions and the admonitions, the exhortations, 365 prohibitions, 248 uh, exhortations. And the, the rabbis, especially the lawyers, were really good at, at dividing them between what is weightier in the law and what was lesser. This is what the lawyers were really good at. And so they come to Jesus with this representative asking Jesus, which is the greatest? On their part, they looked at this as a trap. How is Jesus going to answer this question? But in divine sovereignty, God moves them to ask what is indeed the most important question. What is the greatest commandment? We could put it in other language. What is the chief end of man? This question is not wrong as much as the intent behind it is. This is a question that all of us must grapple with. What is the great commandment? What is our chief end in life? Why do we exist? Why do we have purpose? What defines our life when we look at the whole thing from the moment we are born until the moment we breathe our last? What is our chief end? Think about that. How would you answer that question? If the Pharisees and their lawyers put you on the, in the dock and asked you the question, what is the greatest commandment? How would you answer that question? What is the chief end of man? 
That was the ultimate question. Now notice the supreme answer that is given in the following verses, beginning in verse 37, and we'll read all the way to verse 40 and really focus our attention here. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Let's stop there. Jesus' response here is the most straightforward and direct answer in this entire set of interrogations. In the previous in the previous questions that were asked of Jesus, Jesus asked questions back. Whether it was about taxation or whether it was about the resurrection, there was more of this, this bantering back and forth. But to testify to the critical nature of this question, Jesus does not ask a question in response. It shows us here that the Pharisees had indeed put their finger on what was most important, and actually put their finger on what was most lacking in them. Jesus gets straight to the point, and his answer here is twofold. First of all, he stresses the primacy of love to God. The primacy of love to God, as he gives this ultimate answer, the supreme answer to the ultimate question, he first focuses on the primacy of love to God. We see that in verses 37 to 38. And Jesus does this by quoting Old Testament scripture. This was well known to the Pharisees, of course. They would have worn this verse on them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, part of the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The Shema was recited by pious Jews twice a day. It was written on the doorposts, and it was, it was inscribed on articles of clothing. So in that sense, Jesus is pointing to an answer that was obvious. But it was so obvious that it had been missed by the Pharisees and religious leaders themselves, and so often missed by us as well. We look for things that are much more sophisticated. We look for answers that that are much more complex, much more nuanced. And we look right past what is most obvious, just as the Pharisees. But Jesus reminds them by quoting from this text, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, as we look at that response, that quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, I want you to take four observations from this answer that ties into our our recognition of the, the centrality of the mind here. First of all, notice the command that is given, the command that is given. Jesus says, you shall love. You shall love. Notice that he doesn't say, you shall worship. Now, he could have, and in other contexts, that would have been just a fine answer. But the Pharisees prided themselves in, quote, worship, unquote, didn't they? In fact, a little bit earlier in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says this, quoting from Isaiah, he says to the religious leadership, you hypocrites, 
Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So Jesus doesn't say you shall worship. Jesus focuses on something much more fundamental, much more personal, something that cannot be mistaken for outward appearance. He says, you shall love. And what is the love that he is speaking of here? The love that he is speaking of here is is not some kind of feeling in any primary sense, not some kind of emotional attachment. This is what love means as Jesus is using it here. This is an active, whole-personed cleaving. Think of love in that way. An active, whole-personed cleaving. That's the command, this first observation. It is an active, whole-personed cleaving, the highest dimension of relationship, the free and joyful giving of oneself to another. Now, we, we see that in certain kinds of relationships. For example, Jesus says, no greater love has a man than this, that he laid down his life for his Brother, that is what you call a a whole person cleaving, a, 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 a free and joyful giving of oneself for another. You see that also in marriage. Love, in that sense, is this active, whole person cleaving. And this is what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. You shall love. Now, notice the second observation here. What's the object? We see the command, but... Notice also the object. What is the object of the command? The object is the Lord your God. It is Yahweh. The Lord your God. Yahweh, the one who has manifest himself personally. The one who is the supreme creator and judge of the universe. That statement, the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, is is both personal and transcendent. Imminent and high and lofty, all in one phrase. And this is what's remarkable about that. This is a phrase that, that in, its, in its, its most simplest form seeks to encompass all that God is, both in terms of his person and his, and his relationship, as well as in his transcendence. And Jesus says, you shall love him, this God this great one who is high and lifted up, this great one who is also one who has manifest himself and made himself knowable and has even given you his name. The Lord, your God, that is the object of this love. You are to love him. You are to cleave to him. You are to freely and joyfully give yourself to him. That is the chief end of man, Jesus says. John Owen gives a great definition of this. He says this, quote, Love is the most ruling and prevalent affection in the whole soul, but it cannot be fixed on any object without an apprehension, true or false, of an amiableness and desirableness in it from a goodness suitable to all its desires. How few are they who have that spiritual discerning and apprehension of the divine excellencies, that view of the excellency of the goodness and love of God in Christ, 
as thereby alone to be drawn after him and to delight in him. Yet is this the ground of all sincere, real love to God? He continues by defining that further and more simply. He says this, we love God for himself, for his own sake, not exclusively for our own advantage therein, We love him for a desire of union and enjoyment, which is our only advantage. That's what the love that is is in, in view here. Loving God for who he is. Loving God not not merely for the blessings that he gives to us, not merely for the good things that he gives as the giver of all good gifts, but the kind of love that Jesus has in mind here is that excelling love, that love that excels all others, in that it is loving God because he is inherently worthy of it. Loving him for who he is. So we see the command to love. We see the object, the Lord, your God. Now notice also the instruments of this love. The instruments. How does this love express itself? By what means? And we find it in three nouns. Look at the text. You shall love the Lord your God with what? Your heart. With your soul. And with your mind. Now, what's interesting here is that Jesus substitutes a noun from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Perhaps you picked it up. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, it's, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But here Jesus uses, the, the, for the third word, strength, he uses the noun mind. Now, we have to be careful about speculation. Why did he change the the wording there? And is this implied in the Hebrew for strength? There's all kinds of speculations that commentators will get into as to why that is. But what this we know for sure is that Jesus said, mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. With all your mind. Now, what is the difference between those nouns, heart and soul and mind? And there, too, we can get into a lot of speculation and go into all kinds of directions, seeking to make vast or very vivid distinctions between those nouns. And that's very hard to do. In fact, in other texts, both in Matthew and And in the other Gospels, and even in the rest of the New Testament, we find that often these nouns are used interchangeably, speaking of the same things. And the reason for that is this. We are beings that are composite. We we call ourselves composite beings. We're made up of different components. It's how God has put us together. We have both material components, our, our physical bodies, and we have immaterial components. And you can't just nicely separate those. There's there's bleeding over of these different spheres into each other in how God has wired us together so closely. So this we can tell for sure. When, When Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy and he brings in these three nouns, heart, soul, and mind, what we do know is that Jesus is emphasizing comprehensiveness. 
that the instrument of our affection for God is to include everything of who we are, everything. There is not one component of us that can be left to the side and allowed to have its own affections. Now, every part of us, every component of us, both materially and immaterial, is immaterial, is to be directed toward this cleaving unto Yahweh. But there is a little bit of distinction that we can make in a, in a general sense, and it's this. If we want to press this a little bit, and again, be careful here, but if we want to press this a little bit, when we, when we talk about the heart, we're talking about the innermost center of one's being. You can call the heart mission control center. Proverbs 4 verse 23 describes the heart in, in, in a good way, and, and it describes it this way. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is mission control center. Perhaps you could, you could say this. It's, it's really your person, where your person arises from. The soul is, 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 can, can be looked at a little bit differently. The soul can be looked at that life force that energizes us. The life force that energizes us. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. He breathed into him his soul. And, and so there's a, there's a connection between soul and that life-giving force. And then when we look at the word mind, that one is the easiest out of all of them to define, the mind is the faculty of thinking. The mind is the faculty of comprehension, of comprehending and understanding. The mind is the, 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 the seat of believing. It's the place of convictions. It's the, the place of, of, of comprehending and thinking and pondering and meditating. That's the mind. It's the place of our thoughts. It's the place of where understanding and convictions find their roots. And Jesus says, you must love God, number one, with your heart. That's the place of devotion and obedience. You must love God with your soul. That's the, the, the seat of your energy and passion. And you must love God with your mind. That's the thinking, and belief system. You must love God with that as well. And here's a missing component in so much of Christianity today. It's a missing component in how, how, how so many people think of Christianity. They think of it perhaps in terms of the heart and even of the soul. Of course, religion encompasses the heart and the soul. Of course, my walk with God is determined by devotion and obedience, it's determined by energy and passion, but so often the place that gets neglected, the component of us that is not used for the loving of God, for the cleaving unto Yahweh, is the mind. That place of thinking, where thought life is expressed and enjoyed, where convictions find their seat. So often, we set that aside and are comfortable seeing the mind pursue other things 
and comforting and assuring ourselves that, well, my heart loves God and I have passion for him, the soul part. We think the mind is optional. But what Jesus tells us is that it is not. If you are to truly love Yahweh, and this is indeed the chief end of your life, it must include the mind. And notice this, not only do we see the command, the object of the, uh, of the love, the instruments, heart, soul, and mind, notice this, the extent. Look back at the text. There's a word that is repeated. It's the word all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This repeated word all emphasizes totality. As one commentator states, God will have no mere part. He will allow no division or subtraction. Not even the smallest corner is to be closed against God. What that means is this. There is no room for a divided allegiance. There's no room for a half-hearted, half-souled, half-minded love of God. And since we're focused on the mind this weekend, we have to realize this, that God wants all of it. And your greatest purpose in life is to direct all of your mind's energy always in this grand purpose to the loving of the Lord your God. Not part of it, not just what you might think on Sunday morning or even in this context here. Not just what you may express when you have that time to read the scriptures and pray, but God wants all of it. And you will not find fulfillment. You will not find your purpose in this life. You will not find the joy and contentment that you so desperately seek until your mind is directed in this direction and it cleaves to the Lord your God with all of your thoughts. Again, one commentator, well, R.C. Sproul, theologian, says this, to love God with our minds is to hold him in high esteem, to think about him with reverence and with adoration. The more we love God with our minds, the more we'll be driven to do that other thing that is alien to us in our fallen condition, namely to worship him. To pursue God with our minds simply for intellectual enjoyment and without the ultimate purpose of loving and worshiping him is to miss what it means to love him with all of our minds. True knowledge of God always bears fruit in greater love for God and a greater desire to praise and love him. The more we know him, the more glorious he will appear to us and the more glorious he appears to us, the more inclined we will to be to praise him, to honor him, to worship him, and to obey him. Similarly, John Piper puts it this way, loving God with all our minds means wholly engaging our thinking to do all it can to awaken and express the heartfelt fullness of treasuring God above all things. 
Let me say that again. Loving God with all of our minds means wholly engaging our thinking to do all it can to awaken and express the heartfelt fullness of treasuring God above all things. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now notice verse 38. Jesus reiterates the importance of this duty, calling it not only the great or greatest, but he calls it the first. He says this, verse 38, this is the great and foremost commandment. You could put it this way. Jesus says, this is the great and foremost commandment. There is nothing more important in your life than that statement. This is your chief end. And you cannot do it partly. Jesus says here it requires everything. Now that was the primacy of love for God. I do want to say a few things about the second commandment that is that is made here. There's a few comments on this. We see this in verse 39. Jesus goes on to say this, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the necessity of love for others as well. And it is important to read these two together, not to see them as equals, but to see one as necessarily flowing out of the first and to keep them in the proper order. This is so very important, especially in our day and age, because we hear it over and over again, love thy neighbor, love thy neighbor, love thy neighbor. And in itself, that is a true statement, but taking, in a, it, taking that commandment in a vacuum can be heresy. We must understand the order that Jesus gives here and, and how he categorizes them. It is also heresy to not think of this second commandment. Now here is Jesus, as Jesus quotes here, You can see it in your Bibles. He quotes again from the Old Testament. Instead of quoting from Deuteronomy, he quotes here from from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where Moses says, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, as Moses records. You shall not bear any grudges against the sons of your people, but you shall Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus here in this, in this context connects these two commandments, but he connects the second to the first, with the first being the primary and the second flowing out of it. Indeed, you cannot truly love your neighbor unless you have first and foremost loved the Lord your God. And you must be ever so careful not to switch those around and not to treat as the greatest commandment the second, because in that case, you're guilty of idolatry, of loving your neighbor as the greatest commandment. And you do that, you miss these up, or mix these up, you switch the order, and you're actually blasphemous. At the same time, you miss the second one, and you're distorting divine truth. 
You must recognize them in the right order. Jesus then says this as he wraps this up. He says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. It, on these two commandments are hung the, all the Ten Commandments, the first and the, the last. The first four and the last six all are hung upon this, this command, these two commands. One commentator, Hendrickson, says this, This twofold command is the peg on which the whole law and the prophets hang. Remove that peg and all is lost. For the entire Old Testament, with its commandments and covenants, prophecies and promises, types and testimonies, invitations and exhortations, points to the love of God, which demands the answer of love in return, both to him and to one's neighbor. Now, as we wrap this up, I want to think of some implications here that this has as we think of this greatest of all commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and all our soul, uh, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. I want to give you five important implications here as we, as we consider how this text has authority in our lives today. Number one, very simply, we've touched on this repeatedly already. Number one, loving God requires the use of your mind. Loving God requires the use of your mind. You cannot love God in the true sense without the engagement of your thinking. Christian anti-intellectualism, therefore, is, is an oxymoron. Those two things cannot be in the same sentence. To be a Christian and then to be against the use of the mind, those two things cannot be together. It is impossible to have biblical faith with your mind turned off. To believe with your heart and not to believe with your mind, it is not biblical true faith. And so you must reject that idea, which is so common in Christianity today, that doctrine and convictions and beliefs are not important. As long as you have emotion and passion and sincerity and and readiness to serve, you're all set. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is that, but it is based upon truth. Truth that is grasped with the mind, that is contemplated, that is believed, that is asserted in the the seat of one's thoughts. In fact, it is the epitome of false religion today to to elevate the, the heart and the soul and to leave behind the mind. No, loving God requires the use of your mind. Number two, Loving God requires all of your thinking. Loving God requires all of it. Remember that Jesus placed an absolute claim on all of you and all of who you are. And that includes all of your mind, not just part of it, not just certain times of the day, but all of it. You you cannot 
You cannot limit the use of your mind towards spiritual things to certain categories of, of time in your, your schedules. Every aspect of your thinking, from the moment you're conscience, conscious in the morning to when you put your head down and fall asleep at night, we must always remember that, that it, our minds are operating and therefore they must be directed in a certain way that sponsors and cultivates this cleaving to, to God. Cannot have divided loyalties. And in fact, you put it this way that when you you must examine your minds and think, okay, where, where are those secret thoughts that I have allowed to exist or to continue to exist in the closets, in the secluded places where no one ever sees, no one ever notices, but their thoughts. Thoughts about myself, thoughts about others, thoughts about relationships, thoughts about other things in the world. And there are always those places in our lives, and they will be until we reach glory, where those ideas and thoughts exist. We have a tendency to either turn a blind eye on them or to secretly enjoy those thoughts. And what this text teaches us in, in, the, in loving God with all of our minds, it means that those areas cannot be allowed to exist. There cannot be that neutrality toward them. There cannot be that area in our thought life, however secret and deep and private it may be, that is allowed to exist that does not in some way wrap itself into this cleaving unto God. So let me ask you, are those thoughts prevalent in your life? Those secret areas that must be brought into captivity and destroyed or turned toward God with him as the object of affection. Number three, as I've mentioned right in that final verse there of this text, Verse 39, you shall love your neighbor. Loving God with all your mind must be kept as a prior place to the loving of one's neighbor. Let me put it this way. Loving God with your mind is prior to loving others. Loving God with your mind is prior to loving others. You cannot and will not truly love others unless you first and foremost, as the priority, love God first. And indeed, using your mind to love God will inevitably lead you to love your neighbor. And if you don't love your neighbor, it means you're not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and, and mind. You love the Lord your God, and it will, it will compel you to love your neighbor because you will see your neighbor as one created in the image of God. But you must love the Lord your God first. That is the greatest and foremost of commandments, and you must never subjugate it to the second. And that is such a, a, a very thin line to walk, because as I said, the moment that you do is the moment you step into idolatry. Loving your neighbor as the first and greatest is not loving God. Number four, love God, or loving God with all your mind requires action. It requires cultivation. 
It requires fuel. In response to the preeminence that Jesus places on the mind, you cannot neglect the cultivation of your mind toward loving God. It means you must fuel it the right way. The, 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 the mind must be cultivated in such a way so that it, it, it expresses that love. It, it has as its object of thought God himself and his glories and beauties and inherent majesty. And so what does that mean? That it is it requires action. It means you cannot take a passive approach. You cannot think, okay, I can love the Lord my God with my mind. I know it's it is the great and chief end that I have in life. And I'm just going to see how that happens. No, you must step into action. And you must fan the flames. Piper says it this way, the fires of love for God need fuel. And the fires of love for God drive the energies of thought and deed. There is a circle. Thinking feeds the fire, and the fire fuels more thinking and doing. I love God because I know him, and I want to know him more because I love him. Understand the circle? What it means is that you must focus your thoughts on the greatness of who God is, his character, his worth, his glory, his majesty. And as that happens, as you fill your mind with those thoughts, your love necessarily and automatically grows. And then as your love for him grows, your thoughts are even more determined to probe further into who this God is. That is why even in in the men's ministry this year, we return to the topic of the attributes of God. Because as we studied the Christian mind last year, now the issue is how can we really find the fuel for the fire that will keep the Christian mind growing and developing as it ought to? And there's nothing better than the perfections of God. And as you study his perfections, it motivates the mind. It stretches it. It it, it, it causes your mind to stand in, in amazement at who this God is, and it only fuels a greater fire and passion to understand more. Number five, final one, the final implication here is this. Loving God is the ultimate purpose of your thinking. Why do you have a mind? Think of that. You're a sentient being. And really, when we look at all of creation, there's only two categories of, other than God, the only two categories in in creation of sentient beings, men and angels. No other aspect of creation has a mind. And even in, in consideration of the angels, our minds are different. In that our minds are both fallen and redeemed. And, and angels long to look into that. They, they don't understand us either in that sense. We have been given minds, and we have to ask ourselves the question, why have I been given a mind? Is it just to understand astrophysics? Is it just to understand engineering or medicine? Why have you been given a mind? And the answer is very simply, the greatest reason for why you have been given a mind to think is to think thoughts after God. There's no time in your life when your mind will be put to better use and will fulfill its goal in life, its purpose, than when it is thinking 
thoughts of God. In this sense, we can say this, the Christian mind is not an option. The purpose of thinking is, or the purpose of the mind is never just to be a thinker. It's to to cleave to God through, through our exercise of our thoughts. This is why we have been given a mind. And then may I say this as well, not just to think thoughts about God, but to lead to the natural final outcome of all that, and that is worship as love. That's where love springs from as the mind thinks these thoughts, as it is created to think, and it thinks these thoughts rightly, it cannot but lead to doxology, to worship, to love. Oskinis again said it this way, loving God with our minds is not finally a question of orthodoxy, but of love. Offering up our minds to God in all of our thinking is the heart of praise. Now, having said this, I want to end our time tonight with this very important reality. This is the greatest of commandments. This is your chief purpose. But understand this, you cannot do this on your own. You cannot love the Lord your God in your own strength. We could go into a, a whole study of how our minds have been warped because of Adam's sin Adam plunged the human race, all of the descendants of Adam, into a a mind propensity to think thoughts of hate and corruption against God. And in your own state, apart from any intervention from God, you will never fulfill this great commandment. You can sacrifice all you want, You can go on pilgrimages. You can make yourself look pious and religious. You can go and join a monastery or a nunnery. But that is not going to make you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot do it by your own strength. It is utterly impossible. And on your own, your greatest efforts will never please God because it will never be true love. There will never be a true cleaving unto God in your own strength. No, not at all. Reality of this is as follows. John the Apostle said it best. We love because he first loved us. And how did he first love us? He first loved us in that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die as a ransom for our sin, to pay the penalty for all of those evil, immoral thoughts that have plagued our minds from the earliest day of our consciousness. God sent his son to die to pay the penalty for all of that. Not only to pay the penalty for all of those sins, Jesus sent his son to die in our place so that we might receive newness of life. And in particular, the mind of Christ, a new mind, a mind that now can 
think to God's glory, that can cleave to God through the thinking, through the thought processes. We can do that now because of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. So let me say this. Tonight, as as you go on to do whatever you're going to do tonight, before you go to bed, you need to spend some time thinking through this. This is indeed the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. But the question is this, have you been made new? Has Jesus Christ seized you? And until that has happened, no amount of effort will ever be true love to him. Let's pray. Father, when we hear these words of Jesus, we we recognize our failure. This standard is so high and glorious. And even we who are believers find that we fall short continually. To cleave to you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, it is a standard that is too high and lofty. Our best efforts are always clouded by impure motives. It's always clouded by distraction, divided loyalties. So we are thankful that what is most important is that you first loved us. And we cling to that truth that in all of life, in all of our existence, the most important thing is what you have done for us. Through Jesus Christ, through giving him for us as an atonement for our sin, that through believing in him, we may have newness of life, newness of heart, newness of soul, newness of mind, and then can live in this increasing effort to exercise those things to your glory and to find even in our impartial or imperfect efforts to find joy in that, knowing that you still find delight even in those imperfect efforts. We do pray, Father, that you would increase that, purify that, and in particular through a time together this weekend that as we study more of your word and see what you have to say about our minds, you would purify our our minds and enable us to use them as you have created them to be used. And through that, find joy and peace and relationship with you. We ask this for your glory's sake. And in the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen.